We're reading Mark uh, chapter 12, verses 13, 27. We know God speaks his Bible to us. We want him to be at work in us uh, as we hear it, to shape our heads, to shape our hearts, to shape our lives. Let's ask him to be at work. Father, please do yeah, open our minds. Please do give us attention. Please do uh, give us humility before your word, before you, the God who speaks. And please do continue to form and shape us in yeah, the way we think and in what we think, in how we respond in yeah, our Monday to Sunday lives. In the Lord Jesus. Amen. Just read it. Pharisees convinced they were right and Jesus was wrong about who he is. Sadducees convinced they were right and Jesus was wrong about resurrection, his resurrection, everybody else's resurrection. They come to him in this passage with questions, but they aren't asking the questions because they want to know the truth. They've already decided what is the truth. This passage shows us Jesus teaching truly to people who have no interest in what he will say. One of the joys of preaching uh, to you is that you want to hear the truth. You want to hear God speak the Bible. Uh, We want to hear him speak it. We want to see him shape our thinking, our lives. Reading Mark and seeing how slow the disciples are to learn, uh, seeing these religious folk so sure that they're right while they are absolutely wrong, is a reminder to be careful how we hear. I've never time traveled, and I'm not really expecting to time travel, but I wonder how my younger self would respond if I turned up one Sunday afternoon, maybe 30 years ago, to explain what I was wrong about 30 years ago. Would 20-year-old Wes listen to 50-year-old Wes? Um, any better would, thir- would 30-year-old Wes listen to 50-year-old Wes? Uh, if my 60-year-old self turned up this afternoon to tell me what I'm wrong about, would I listen? I'd like to think I would. But really it doesn't matter much compared to whether I listen to the living, true, and holy God as he speaks the Bible to me. I can see some of where my heart and my life need to catch up with what I'm already convinced is true. But I never see where I'm wrong before God shows me where I'm wrong. I, I never see what I'm forgetting, or the, I never see the truth I haven't really heard yet, or I don't, I don't see the emphasis that I'm put, putting in the wrong place, or where I'm failing to see the implications of the truth I already know. I don't see it until God shows it to me. If you've learned anything in the last year, well, the things you thought a year ago were incomplete, untrue. What are you wrong about today? What are you wrong about today? Maybe you already know some of it. Uh, Maybe God's been showing you the truth uh, as we've been reading his word together. Maybe you're finding it hard to let go of old thoughts. You know, that, you know that they're not in line with what God has been teaching. Those thoughts need to change. 
But what else are you wrong about today? What are you convinced is true that is actually untrue? What are you convinced is true but is actually untrue? Yeah, I know. I don't know what I'm... I don't know what I'm convinced is true that is actually untrue. I don't think any of us do. No, none of us do. That's the nature of the question, isn't it? How are you going to find out what you're wrong about? How are you going to find out what's true? As we've worked through Mark earlier in the year, we passed over very quickly this section we're looking at today, coming back to hear Jesus more clearly. At the beginning of chapter 12, we did look at uh, in a bit of detail on the way through, but let's just recap. Uh, Jesus tells a parable to uh, show the temple authorities how wrong they are to reject him. They're like tenants renting a vineyard. Uh, They're refusing to pay rent to the owner. But worse, they're tenants who attack and kill the servants he sends to collect the rents. They even attack and kill his son when he sends him. And all the time expecting that they'll be the ones who get the vineyard. It wouldn't happen in this story. And it won't happen in reality. God won't let Israel's leaders get away with what they're doing to his beloved son. Verse 12, they know the parable is about them. But they refuse to believe it. They hear the warning, but they don't change their minds. They don't change their plans. They ignore the warning. They'd arrest Jesus. They'd send him to death there and then if they could. But they're scared about what the crowd will do. So verse 13, they send Pharisees and Herodians to trap him. It's religious purists and political realists working together to try to trick and trap Jesus. They call Jesus teacher, they compliment him, they say to him, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. And they're right, he is true. He doesn't twist his words to fit the person listening, he speaks God's word. What they say is true, but their hearts are untrue. They don't think what they say, they're fake. They're just trying to soften Jesus up so that they'll get an honest answer to an honest question. No, so they'll get his answer to their dishonest question. They ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, not many people are excited to pay their taxes. First century Jews, they got hit twice. Uh, They were hit by the temple tax, the, the local in Israel tax. Don't know how they felt about that, but they hated the tax that the Roman Empire made them pay. Caesar's tax reminded them they were defeated. It underlined their weakness compared to the Roman Empire. It paid for the Roman soldiers who walked their streets and kept them in line. So when the Pharisees and Herodians asked Jesus if if they should pay Rome... They're basically tossing Jesus a coin and saying, heads we win, tails you lose. Heads we win because if you tell us to pay our Roman rulers, well, the crowd won't like it and they'll stop protecting you. Tails you lose because if you say we shouldn't, the Romans will come after you as a political rebel. 
It's a trick, but Jesus isn't tricked. He knows they're faking. He asks them to toss him a real coin, a denarius, one of the silver coins made by the Roman government. Now, we shouldn't assume that Jesus and his disciples didn't have a denarius between them. It's not kind of a, by the way, Jesus is poor thing. He's asking them for a coin because they have the coins. He's asking them for one of their coins because he wants to remind them that they use it. When they buy groceries, when they go out for lunch, they use Roman coins. So Jesus takes the coin they give him, he looks at it, and he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose picture? Uh, Whose words are these? According to the slide is one issued uh, during Tiberius' reign. Good connection, we're actually talking real world here. It's got his head on it. It describes Tiberius as son of the divine Augustus. It's saying that uh, Augustus, his father, after he died, became a god. So Tiberius is a son of a god. None of the Jews liked that idea. They knew it was blasphemous. But these Pharisees and Herodians carry those words wherever they go. (laughs) They're not excited to have Jesus make a point of it. So when Jesus asks, whose picture is this? Whose words are these? They spit out their answer, Caesar's. Jesus doesn't say they're wrong to use the coins complete with blasphemous claims. He does say, verse 17, render, give back, pay back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Caesar's government made the coin, so give the tax he demands. He has a right to it. Now, it may or may not be helpful in, in thinking about taxes, I had to think about the value that we get for our tax dollars paid in GST and income tax and rates and the rest. Federal, state, and local uh, taxes pay for things like health care, defense, foreign policy, immigration, police, ambulance, and fire services, planning, parks, roads, public transport, sewage, rubbish collection. You're going to think, what do I get for my taxes? Well, that's what you get for your taxes. Uh, the taxes we pay are spent in ways that we benefit from and in ways we wish they could be spent a bit better. It's useful to see the benefit that we and others get from our tax dollars. But Jesus isn't saying pay it because you benefit from it. The the local benefits the Israelites got for paying Caesar was those Roman soldiers, keeping them from rebelling against Roman rule. Jesus doesn't say give to Caesar what he's owed, because you're getting good payback for it. He's saying, give to Caesar what he's owed. He's saying, give, says, give to Caesar what he's owed. He's not saying Caesar is good. He's not saying Caesar is God or a son of God. Nor is he aiming to bring a political revolution. He's saying, submit to those in authority. Submit because God's placed them in authority over you. It's easy to obey our, obey our government only when we can see how they help us or when we see the possibility of being punished. It's easy to keep the speed limit when there are kids on the crossing, or when you can see the police radar standing there. It's easy to pay tax when you can see what you're getting, or where there's nowhere to hide. But seeing the benefit and knowing the risk of punishment are not the only reasons to obey our government or pay our taxes. We get to treat God as God by acknowledging the authorities he's placed over us. 
We get to treat God as God by acknowledging the authorities he has placed over us. That'll include not giving them what they're not owed. Uh, Verse 17 is as much about limits around what's owed to Caesar as it is about owing him something. He isn't owed everything. He isn't owed being treated uh, treated as or honored as God. Within the generation of when Jesus spoke, there were Christians uh, being threatened with death for refusing to treat Caesar as God. And they did refuse. And they did die. They worshipped only the living, true, and holy God and his Son, our Lord Jesus. They died rather than give Caesar what he wasn't owed. See, honoring God like that, that's the focus of verse 17. Rendering, giving, paying back to God the things that are God's. Caesar's coins have Caesar's likeness on them. God's humans have God's likeness on them. We're stamped with his image. Men, women, and children, we are made to rule over the world under his rule. We are made to live in God's very good world in ways which echo the way he made his good world. That has implications out into every area of life. Nothing's left untouched. It's living to please and honor him in all areas, including this one. So I guess when we hear him tell us to give authorities what they're owed, it transforms the tedious task of obeying federal, state, local government, it gives it a different color. It's another way to please and honor the Lord Jesus, to give glory to our Father. When we deliberately and thoughtfully pay or obey in submission to our good and loving Savior. And there may be situations where how we must deliberately and thoughtfully refuse people in authority when they claim a submission which is not their due. The Pharisees came to trap Jesus. He answered the question. He avoided their trap. They're amazed, maybe impressed. As you read on the mark, you see they're unchanged. They step back and some Sadducees step forward. Verse 18, Mark mentions that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. They say this life is all there is. There's nothing more. And we all know that's why they're sad, you say. Yeah. They didn't just reject resurrection. They doubted that angels exist. They basically ignored all the books of the Bible that came after Deuteronomy, all the ones not written by Moses. The first five were the ones they focused on. It's safe to assume that they come to ask this question because they've heard about Jesus teaching or heard him actually teaching himself about his resurrection, about judgment after death, about eternal life. They come to ask a question, but they haven't come for information. They've come to mock resurrection. There's a bit of background to their question. Uh, Verse 19, they say, Teacher, Moses wrote... For us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, he must, a man, the man must, sorry, let me read that again. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Oh, they say it's true. It's Deuteronomy 25. Uh, the aim was to make sure that the brother 
who had died had an heir, uh, so that his name would continue, so that, that there would be that would who would receive his inheritance. Uh, when it worked, it meant that the first son of the widow uh, would be registered as the son of her dead husband. He would keep the family line from the son would keep the line from family line from dry, dying out. The family inheritance wouldn't be broken up. It's a law for this life. It kept the land that God gave his Old Testament people in the family God gave it to. So verse 20, then they paint a picture. Seven brothers, the oldest oldest marries a woman and they have no children and he dies. The next brother marries her, still no children, and he dies. Uh, Same story for the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh. Still no children, all the men dead, and then she dies. Verse 23 is the question. In the resurrection, when all eight of them are alive again, whose wife will she be? The the Pharisees are standing at the back and they're thinking, oh, it's going to be the first husband. The Sadducees, they're thinking, actually, none of the eight are ever going to rise. We're just asking the question to make resurrection look ridiculous. Seven blokes, one, one woman, she's been married to all seven of them. They're trying to figure out between them who's going to be the one. They think the law designed to keep the lands God gave in the family God gave it to implies that there can be no eternal inheritance. Jesus tells them they're wrong. And he explains why, verse 24. They don't know the scriptures and they underestimate God's power. He says to these Sadducees who don't believe in resurrection and who doubt that angels exist, all eight of them will be raised like angels. They'll be raised unmarried and never marrying. Their their attempt to make resurrection look ridiculous just exposes how ignorant they are about marriage. Marriage is ended by death. If a woman had, if the woman had married her husband's brother while her first husband was still alive, well, that would be adultery. But after he died, well, she's free to marry again. Didn't become adulter- an adulteress when she did. Marriage is ended by death. And when people whose marriages are ended by death rise, I guess they'll know and recognize and be glad to see each other, but they won't still be married. Verse 25, none of the marriages are re-established in resurrection. When the woman and the seven men are raised, none of them will be married, and none of them will marry. In terms of marriage, they'll be like angels. Made, not multiplying. Made, not marrying. Perhaps the Sadducees might have begun to go in this direction if they they hadn't ruled out the, the idea of angels existing in the first place. Verse 26, Jesus comes back to their core issue, resurrection. He's shown them that their little marriage and death story doesn't make resurrection look ridiculous after all. Now he shows them that their re- rejection of resurrection is ridiculous. They think Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are dead that they've been dead since long before Moses was born and that they'll never live again. Jesus asked them, 
Is that because you've never read the bit about when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush? That's Exodus, second book of the Bible, one of the books they did read. You know the bit about the living and true and holy God saying about himself, I am Abraham's God and Isaac's God and Jacob's God? Surely if you've read it, you would have thought, hey, that's weird. It's weird for God to say that he is their God after they're dead. You'd expect him to say, hey, I'm the God who was the God of. But he doesn't. He says he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the God of the living. You're quite wrong. See how Jesus is explaining to them what Moses wrote so long ago? God could simply have described himself as I am, the God who is. But when he said, I am the God of your ancestors who died centuries ago, he's implying that he has continuing relationship with them, that he is still, he's saying he is still their God. At the very least, that means they will be raised, they will live again. First Thessalonians talks about how uh, all the dead will be raised, flesh, blood, and bones together when Jesus returns. It seems to me that what Jesus is saying here is that Abraham is waiting for that resurrection and has been waiting and waiting alive since the day of his death. How that works, I don't know. But I don't need to know. I know it's well within the power of the God who made the universe to make it so. The Sadducees were way off the mark when they said there is no resurrection. God's been speaking about resurrection from the very first days of the covenant. Now, one implication of this little section is to do with resurrection. There is more than this life. No one's existence ends with their death. No one will be reincarnated as a cat or a dog or a frog or anything else. Everyone will be raised. That's a simple reality. The Sadducees saying that there's no resurrection didn't make it so, not for them or anyone else. Friends saying that there's no resurrection doesn't make it free, make it so for them. If they think there's nothing beyond death, well, they'll still be raised. If they like the idea of resurrection, of, if they like the idea of reincarnation, well, they'll still die once and be raised. Whatever you think happens after death, you will be raised. See, everything that Jesus says about life beyond death insists that there will be either resurrection to eternal life or resurrection to eternal judgment. Everyone will die once and be raised to face the judgment. Jesus came to rescue from the judgment we deserve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He gives eternal life to everyone who gives up living for themselves and instead lives for him. His followers will come to judgment with their debt already paid by Jesus. But everyone else will come to judgment. Those who come to judgment without Jesus will owe a debt they cannot pay. Jesus warns about how awful that judgment is. Those pictures we saw a few weeks ago, 
of fire that never goes out, of maggots that never eat their fill. It's dreadful, but it's his loving warning. His loving warning because it's true. And his loving warning because he's showing the way out through trust in him. That's the reality we live in. It's the reality that everyone lives in. When we see it clearly, we see the wonder of the rescue that Jesus has brought, the importance of following him to the end. When we see it clearly, it drives us to devote ourselves to seeing one another, keep in step with the Spirit and not lose hearts, to order our lives around seeing those who we know in our sphere of relationship, those around the nations, hear the gospel by which God saves. Hearing Jesus more clearly in this little section, it sends us into Monday to Sunday life with a clear understanding of how to treat people in authority, with a clear understanding of ourselves owing everything to God who made us, a clear understanding of the inevitability of resurrection for ourselves and everyone. One other implication is the one I suggested we think about as we're kicking off today. The people who came to Jesus in this passage, they thought they were thinking Bible thoughts. They were convinced they already knew the truth. But when Jesus told them they were wrong, they walked away unchanged. They ignored the warning. Seeing them hold tightly to untruth, it's a warning. They should have listened to Jesus. And we must keep listening to Jesus. We must keep listening to the Bible that Jesus teaches us to accept as God's word to us. I asked you earlier, what are you convinced is true but is actually untrue? Of course you don't know, none of us know. But I'm not asking you a question to trick or trap you. Um, ask it to make a point. You can guarantee that you'll never be right by assuming you already are. You can guarantee you'll never be right by assuming you already are, or you can assume you're missing something and aim to make space for the truth. It's hard to think new thoughts. It's hard to change your mind. It's harder when you've thought the same thing for a long time or, or when you know other thoughtful people who agree with you. It's easy to lock down our thoughts to ignore what doesn't quite fit. But we mustn't do that. Now, I'm not suggesting that we change carelessly. But we've got to be careful, otherwise we might hold on to the wrong things. When the waves of Scripture are threatening to, to sink a dearly held belief, well, it's time to let it go. Whether it's a, whether it's a belief that, that sits out of the edge, or whether it's one of those things we thought, I'll never change my mind about this. When the waves of Scripture are threatening to sink a dearly held belief, well, it's time to let it go. So keep doing what you're doing. And do it expecting that you still have things to learn. Misunderstanding to be corrected, truth to see more clearly, implications to uncover. 
Like from time to time we'll do topical talks. It can be incredibly helpful to read topical books. Books that just, they, they just help us put the pieces together in ways we haven't quite seen yet. Or they open us up to considering possibilities that we haven't yet considered. But the danger with topics and things is that we only ever hear what we already think. Or we listen to them to prove that what we already think is true or to find out why they are so wrong about what they think. Helpful, but limiting. That's why I want to keep encouraging you to do what we do. For the core of our learning to be carefully reading Bible passages. Hearing them preached, revisiting and reconsidering them privately. To be doing that in community with each other. And doing all of that with the prayer that as we hear God speak the Bible, he will teach us and correct us and rebuke us and train us in righteousness. That he'll show us where we're wrong and teach us what is true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus we see your truth We have reason to listen carefully to you as the God has revealed himself clearly. Thanks for the insights into how we are to treat those in authority over us. How we're to treat you as the God who made us in your image. How we're to live now knowing that we and everyone else will one day be raised to life or to judgment. Father, please in these things, please in everything, make us humble before you, the God who speaks to us. Please do reshape our thinking as we read your word. Give us humility to listen. Please use us as a community to to open one another up to considering possibilities as we read your word. Please move us together towards a clearer and fuller grasp of what is true. Father, we ask that we'd see ourselves more clearly, that we'd see you more clearly, that knowing the truth would feed lives centered on you, waiting for the day your son returns and living to please and honor you and him while we wait. Please work it by your spirit. We ask it through your son. Amen.